Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Alka Joshi. I am Payal Doshi, your moderator. I am the author of a middle grade fantasy called Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar. I am absolutely delighted to be here interviewing you, Alka, tonight, not just as a moderator, but as an avid fan. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Pyle. It's true. When I got asked to, if I was willing to do this, I was just like, I had to, I had to tell myself I should wait at least an hour before replying. So I don't sound <laughs> so ridiculously eager. So uh, this is amazing. This is a pinch me moment for me. Um, but before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA the Metropolitan Library Service Agency made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Ramsey County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event. Alka Joshi moved to the United States at age nine but the author's native Rajasthan, India looms large in her chart-topping historical fiction. Many readers know her best for The Henna Artist, the first entry in the Jaipur trilogy. It follows dye artisan and herbal healer Lakshmi Shastri, who flees an abusive marriage and attempts to earn a livelihood in the vibrant city of Jaipur. Set in the unsettled decade after the country's independence, The Henna Artist is a fabulous glimpse into Indian culture of the 1950s, Rich in detail and bright with tastes and textures, says Bookpage. Reese Witherspoon selected Joshi's debut for her Hello Sunshine book club, and the book will soon have a second life as a Netflix original series. The Perfumist of Paris, Joshi's much-anticipated conclusion to the Jaipur trilogy, hit shelves in March. In an early review, historical fiction mainstay Kate Quinn raves, evoking India and France with equal beauty, this is Alka Joshi's best book yet. I have to agree. <laughs> I completely have to agree. That's very hard to agree. Um, so after some initial questions for me, we will have plenty of time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. 
Okay, and without further ado, let's just dive in. Yeah, um, I know you have some great questions for me today. I hope so. I'm very excited about this discussion and I, I, I'm, I'm using this opportunity to sort of dig into your writer brain to gain some writerly insight for my own self. <laughs> great, great. So let's start from the beginning, Alka. Let's start with a henna artist. What drew you to explore the world of henna artists in Jaipur in the 1950s? And what oh. prompted you, sorry, two-part okay. question. Um, <laughs> And what prompted you to write a story about a woman who's journeying through the spirit in her life where she's fighting to be her own person and wants to live life on her own terms against all odds? In the perfumist, I mean, in the henna artist, um, I created Lakshmi as an alter ego to my mother's life. My mother um, had never had the opportunity to make her own decisions. Her... Um, partner in life was arranged for her by her uh, family. She uh, was taken out of college to do that. She didn't get to complete college or have a career. So for me, uh, creating Lakshmi was a way to say, mom, I'm creating this life for you that where you get to leave your marriage and not have any children that are going to hold you back. And then you get to create this amazing life. And I thought, what would a woman in 1955 India do if she were to leave her husband. You know, it was very hard back then to leave a marriage at all. Uh, now, I mean, people are still very um, reticent to say I've been divorced, right? So Lakshmi has so far not been able to obtain a divorce because divorce was only legalized among Hindus in 1955, which is why I start the story in 1955. So I thought, well, here's this woman, she's trying to hide the fact that she was married um, and she deserted her husband. What is she going to do for a living? She has no uh, training. Uh, she only has a, a schooling up until 15 years of age. And how is she going to get by in her life? Well, we all know that in India, everybody has had Mandy or henna done to their hands, to their feet. I remember wanting to have my mother have the henna artist do that to me when mom was getting ready for a festival. So um, every girl knows uh, about henna. And as long as you know how to mix the paste, um, you can create your own designs and be as uh, successful as Lakshmi was. So I thought, okay, all she needs is a little bit of henna plant and then the ability to mix it with all these different essential oils. Well, Rajasthan, which is where she is, is one of the uh, biggest sources of henna because the plant grows abundantly in hot, dry climates. So. Wow. So that was, you know, it was perfect for Lakshmi being able to actually get the leaves, dry them, uh, you know, uh, grind them into a fine powder and use them for her henna paste. Um, so that was one major thing that I uh, thought would be really interesting for people to learn about and to know that henna has not just the beautification of the body, but also the cooling and calming properties that are released once it is ground into a powder. Which is what I didn't know of, you know, as oh. one who has put Mandy for every occasion, wedding. Um, I I learned so much from this book with the with exactly that, the uses and and the properties of the henna paste and the ingredients that go into it. Um, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, the herbal healing came about because I think in all of our South Asian families, and I'm sure also in Italian families and German families and all kinds of different families, there are remedies that are passed down through the ages and they're all herbal because that's what people had back then. They didn't have Western medicine. And so, um, you know, they use plant-based uh, remedies. Uh, for example, when my mother would, um, you know, we would get a cut or, you know, some kind of uh, uh, hurt, she would mix her turmeric with some <laughs> coconut oil, you know, and put it right on the heart. And it really does, uh, you know, heal all by itself. We don't always need to be using uh, smelly ointments and things like that. So um, I, I wanted to bring light to the fact that in India, so many of the herbal remedies are still being used today, are still being practiced. And really, I think the world is richer for knowing about the kinds of things that Indians have been doing for centuries. Uh, this is probably why Starbucks has created that golden latte because turmeric <laughs> is anti-inflammatory and we all need to be ingesting some part of it every day. Absolutely, 100%. And the best thing is all of these ingredients are, are pantry ingredients, especially in South Asian households. We use these ingredients in our day-to-day -day cooking and they have um, just so much use and value to them. And like I said, I learned so much more uh, reading this book and I was just like, whoa, that's what a clove can do? <laughs> um, that it was, it was fascinating. And I, I also wanted to ask this question because a lot of um, Lakshmi's life parallels Radha's life in a in the similar sense of her just trying to discover herself and figuring out what she uh, wants to do. And once she figures it out, how she sort of stands her ground to achieve it. Uh, both are so uh, such phenomenally strong female characters, um, which leads me to my next question is to me as the reader, scents and perfumery came as such a natural extension to uh, the same kind of uh, sensory details that Hannah evoked in the first book. But then I was thinking, uh, was that an easy transition for you? Did you have to go looking and experimenting with maybe different passions rather could uh, sort of delve into to figure out what she wanted to do? Or were you like, nope, I know she's going to be a perfumist and I'm sending her to Paris. I did. When I wrote The Henna Artist, there were 140 pages that did not make it into the book. I had my agent telling me, um, you know, cut out the Lakshmi, uh, cut out the Radha and the Malik uh, information. Cut, cut, cut. I had editors telling me the same thing so that the focus was really just on Lakshmi in The Henna Artist. But I had all this other material. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, when you have lived with characters as long as I have, the first book took me 10 years uh, to get to a publisher and then another two years before it was published. And when you've been living with characters that long, they actually start telling you what they want to do. Uh, and in the end of The Henna Artist, it didn't make it into the book, but it was all the future stories of what was going to happen to Lakshmi and Dr. J, uh, what was going to happen to Malik and what uh, Radha was going to end up doing. So I already knew from way back when that she was going to elope with this Frenchman who was traveling through the Himalayas. And then she was going to go up uh, to Paris to be with him and get married and then have these two kids and go into the perfume business. Now, I could have chosen another business for her, but here's the thing. Um, she was really good at mixing henna paste. So I knew that she had to be in a profession where she's she knows how the mixing of different ingredients interact and, uh, you know, how to make something better than anybody, anybody else can. 
So I thought, well, she could become a chef because she was a good chef already at the age of 13 and the henna artist. And I thought, what else could she do? Well, uh, you know, cooking is good, right? Everybody is cooking, but there's something exotic about perfume. There's something very sexy and uh, very, um, you know, feminine about perfume. And I wanted to capture that because I thought, you know, she's she's a sexy woman, right? And uh, and she and I think that she deserves to be with something that is this um, sort of powerful. It's also very modern, that, yeah. and, and is what Radha is in comparison to Lakshmi. No, it was it was so perfectly seamless that I I really paused for a moment and I was like, did did this? Did she land on this just as if it was just you know just pure gold, or did she have to go around figuring out? Because it was it was it just it was it just made the perfect sense, the perfect transition, and and such cohesiveness through the trilogy because they are independent stories as much as they are companion novels and they're part of a trilogy, but they can be all read separately and still you'd be fine. Uh, but well, gets, and yeah. that's how I wanted them to be because I never intended for there to be a trilogy. They have all just really come separately uh, with the characters telling me, uh, you know, tell my story, tell my story. So and I had no idea when I wrote The Henna Artist that there were going to be three of them and that each one would focus on a different character. It really, really was very organic. So yes, all three of them can be read separately. Yes, they can. And like, and then, then there's this, this read this cohesion that runs through it and it was um yeah it's your books are so sensory heavy and again um rich rich with detail uh I could feel the research that has gone into this book I mean I'm imagining tombs of research sitting by your desk um you know just to give a little bit to the to the to the audience members um here today tonight um, you have in the henna artist, you have spoken about rural life uh, or life in rural India in the 50s. Uh, you have an in-depth um, description of the henna trade in Jaipur. You talk about the lives of the Indian Maharajas. We, you talk about life post-independence, both for the wealthy and the poor. In the perfumist of Paris, you again, you have the perfume industry in the 70s. Um, you talk about the art of creating scents and perfumes, um, how scents linger for the, you know, the first notes and then the notes that linger thereafter, uh, the sensibilities of Persian culture and people, down to the street names. Like you feel like I, I mean, I was in Jaipur and then I was in, 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 in Paris. It was, it, it was incredible. And so can you talk a bit about your research process and how and what do you do to not get overwhelmed as the writer and then also not to overwhelm the reader because there's so many incredible details? Well, I don't know if most people know this, but most of us writers are nerds. We yeah. love to learn. We really do. We love to learn. And so I am constantly reading things. I'm constantly looking up things. Um, you know, I go to my uh, local library and I, I go, how can I find stuff about this? And on the internet, there is a wealth of research uh, that you can find. Um, you can also find the up-to-date things that people are doing. You can find lots of images and one of the things that my uh, mentor from my MFA program taught me is how to make visual boards. So I always look for images of my characters and the settings, what I have in my mind and what I can find uh, on the internet. And then I make a visual board. So every single time that I'm describing that character, I can look at the photograph that I have found or the image I have found and I'll go, oh, you know what? They have a mole on that side of their head. So that's what I'm gonna put in the book. 
that the, you know this character has a mole on that side of their head um or that person wears round glasses instead of square glasses so um it really helps me to uh you know ground people in the way people look in the setting itself here i am on this street uh, and there is a bus stop in front of me and there is a cart, uh, you know, with somebody pulling, um, you know, vegetables on it. And so, you know, these things all become really real in my mind. And I want to entrench the reader also in the setting. I want them to feel like they are really there um, because if not, then it's just going to feel like any other novel. And I, I want them to have that experience of being in India, of being in Paris. And now with the fourth novel that I'm writing, they're going to be in New Delhi. They're going to be in Prague. They're going to be in Florence and in Paris. <laughs> you have just answered one of the questions coming up much later that uh, are there, are we going to see these characters again? And so I've, I'm, you're teasing that we are. It's Now that, that I don't know. I don't know yet whether you're going to see another... Uh, a, a fourth this uh, is a brand know. new novel that is the fourth yeah. novel okay, okay. <laughs> but everybody's been telling me oh you know you must write about this next generation you know you've got Nikki you've got um, Malik's right. children you've got Ra uh, uh, Radha's children right. exactly yeah no I mean oh yes I, I don't think there's going to be a person in this conversation discussion today that's going to say don't do it uh, yes <laughs> We need some more, I thought, Joshi. Um, so, uh, well, let me ask you a question again about the perfumist. So what I had to do for the perfumist, uh, Paris, is that I do not uh, know anything about perfume. I don't even wear perfume. And no. so I've got, well, Radha's going to have to know a lot about perfume. And once again, I want the reader to feel like they're in the lab with her. So I was talking to the producer uh, of the henna artist uh, TV series. And I said, Michael, I'm doing this next book and it's about perfume. And I don't know anything about perfume. He said, oh, then you have to talk to my friend Ann Gottlieb in New York. So that's when I called up Ann and she said, come out to New York City. I flew out there. She uh, put me in touch with these master perfumers and she took me to one of these big fragrance labs. All of a sudden I had the visual of where Radha works and how uh, she performs her work, you know, what her setting looks like. Then those people that I met in, in New York City said, you've got to go to Paris to talk to master perfumers there. So I went to Paris, talked to some folks there. Um, and then they said, you should go down to Grasse because that is where perfume is compounded into, you know, larger vats and then bottled. So I went down there and, you know, everybody along the way has been so gracious and so generous with their time. I cannot believe how me, I'm just a stranger and I walk in and I say, hey, you know, can you teach me a little bit about perfume? And yes, they are completely open to it and, and help me. The people in Cross then said, you need to go to Lisbon. There's a couple of people there that you should talk to. So then I flew to Lisbon uh, where I had never been before. And it was, oh, it's so lovely. I don't know if anybody here is planning on going to Lisbon, but you should go because it is absolutely a gorgeous place. So I go to Lisbon. I see this young uh, uh, Indian woman who is a perfumer and she is developing a whole line uh, using ingredients mainly from India. And I also meet there an 85-year-old gentleman who, whose name is Yves de Chiri. And uh, he helped me so much with uh, some of the 1970s of Paris in this book uh, because it's the perfumist is taking place in 1974. And I needed to understand what was happening in the perfume world then. Well, he told me it's very misogynistic and it was very sexist and very few women could ever make it to the top. But there were a few exceptions. And one of them, was Sophia Grossman. And Sophia 
uh, was uh, she smoked like a chimney. And I said, how can somebody who's smoking like a chimney uh, be able to create perfume? He said, I don't know, but she is still known for the fragrances that she created are amazing. So uh, I, in The Perfumist, uh, Radha has a boss named Delphine, who also smokes like a chimney. So now you, you can kind of see where some of these research can see, yeah. make it into the book. It's really fun. Oh, I love this. This is, oh, this is like music to my ears uh, when things like this happen. And I guess for everyone listening and especially any writers out there, the, the lesson is ask the questions, right? Yeah. Just don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to sound stupid um, yeah. because that's yeah. the thing. Want to take on ambitious projects? We sometimes know very little about the things that we want to explore in these books. So ask right, and then also, you know, I really firmly believe that you must ask for help. The most somebody will ever say to you is no. No. You know, and 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 Anne, the first person I started with, she didn't say yes right away. So, but I'm persistent. If I am persistent, if nothing else, I am persistent. So I contacted her, I think about three times before she said, okay, I will talk to you, but you need to come out to New York City. And so, hey, I'm going to go out to New York City. I'm not going to argue with her and say, no, I just need to talk to you on the phone, right? So I think that this is a lesson I, I know works over and over and over, no matter what profession I've been in. And becoming a full-time author is my fourth profession. So in every profession, I just ask people for help. Can you help me figure this out? Can you help me understand this? And most likely, everybody always says yes. Every now and then somebody says no, and I go, okay, I'll move on to the next person. <laughs> Honestly, that is, it is such a, it is a life lesson. And um, I, even with, with, I would assume even just with, with the author life, there are so many things I debuted two years ago. I didn't know anything. And it's only when you ask questions, do you figure things out and learn so much more? than you would have by just silently observing and not really participating. Right. Alka, let's talk characters. I, I mean, as much as your books are just treasure trove, troves of detail, the characters in these books have been fantastic. Focusing on the perfumist of Paris, we have a cast of characters and to name a few, we have Radha, we have Pierre, we have Mathilde, we have Hazi, we have Nazreen, uh, we have Nikki, we have Delphine and my favorite Florence. Um, what I love about each of these characters is that none of them are fully good or fully bad. They all make questionable decisions. They all have selfish thoughts, sometimes cunning thoughts. They're all flawed, but they each have redeemable qualities. And this melange of emotion and behavior makes them so relatable. How conscious were you of making sure that they were this flawed? Um, and and so gray when crafting your characters. Whenever I have read any book that really resonated with me, it's because the characters were so um, compli complicated um, that I felt like they're real. These people are real because we are complicated people. Every single one of us, we have good impulses and we have bad impulses. And uh, sometimes one you know, wins out over the other. Um, we are uh, really good to the people we love and we're bad to the people we love because we know that they'll love us regardless. So there are all these things about us that I think are worthy of uh, in, in, um, inserting into character. Um, I think that the books I've never really um, 
sort of gelled with are the ones where everybody seems flat, like, you know, everybody is just beautiful, or they're just good, or they're just that. So I wanted in my characters to be like real life. Uh, so for me, it's really fun to develop these characters. Now, Kyle, I'm sure that you're probably thinking, what does she do? Like, does she does she form a character Bible for each one? You know, they're going to be this way. They're going to they're going to act this way in this situation. No, I do not. I don't do any of that. My characters come fully formed. I know that's kind of weird. I do not like you. (laughs) (laughs) So the moment that I start writing, okay, let's say a scene will come to me and that scene is taking place either outside, inside, uh, maybe there's furniture around. I see it all. I see the whole thing. I see the scenes. I see the people. I see what they're wearing. I see if there's flowers in the room, all of that. And then I just start playing with where the characters are, what they're talking about, what each of their intentions are, and whether there's a conflict in the two or three characters in every scene who might have, um, you know, divergent needs. So, Uh, These kinds of things I play with and play with and play with in my head. So I am constantly thinking about my characters and moving these scenes around in my head. I do not actually write anything down until mm, maybe like a month, three weeks, something like that. And then I actually write the whole thing down on my laptop. You mean a scene, you will play around with a scene in your head, a scene. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and then- And then after that, another scene will come to my imagination and I'll start working on that scene. And um, that's kind of how it starts building. It's like building a sandwich, right? So you have your bread and then you have your mayonnaise and then you have this, you have that. So um, I'm building a sandwich and the very end of it is my epilogue. So, you know, it just grows from there. Now, I do, when I first start writing, the next time that I will start writing my laptop, I will read everything that I have done previously. So that there's a flow, there's a flow in um, the movement of the characters, there's a flow in, you know, where the story is going. So then do you plot anything out? Or do you just know this is sort of what I, well, even, even with Radha's story, do you, you had the kernel, like you knew she was gonna, you know, run away with this Frenchman, and they're gonna have these two kids, and she's gonna figure out, she has, she has a tussle between career and, and family life. Right. You write down sort of a bulleted uh, list of things that happen and that, or do you just go like, let me just dive, like the scene has come, do you write out of order? Is it chronological? Um, Yeah, sometimes I do, but uh, mostly it's chronological. Sometimes if I write out of order, it's because a scene will not leave my head. And I know it's not right for the chronological order, but it's just there and it wants me to write it down. So I write it down. Um, Now, this is uh, this is an interesting question because uh, uh, I remember going to my mentor's office one day uh, when we were having uh, a mentor session, and uh, I saw all these post-it notes all over her wall, and I said to her, "I go, am I expected to write the same way too? Like <laughs> you, you've got scenes and every post-it notes, and you're moving them around on this big wall." And uh, she said, no, 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 every writer's process is different. And so I thought, oh, phew, because I am not that (laughs) organized. I really need to let the scenes flow one after another. And I do not know where it's going. So for example, in The Perfumist, I had no idea what Mathilde was going to do at the end. I was completely flummoxed. Um, I did not know that Florence would go through a conversion as she did. Wow. 
came out and she just came out of the development of all of these scenes and all of a sudden I could see her for the person she is and I empathize with her yes she turned out to be one of my favorite characters I mean she's a she's a you know she's a side character but such a strong like she she grows to become you know I don't want to give too much away because I, I know there are some folks who haven't probably finished reading the books but she just grows to be um such a a powerful force but a very silent silently powerful force in uh, Radha. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I think everybody will be very surprised to know that Hari makes an appearance in The Perfumist of Paris. And I had a reader tell me recently that that what's really beautiful about The Perfumist is a lot of the secondary characters, their lives and their stories also get uh, a full closure uh, in this. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was when, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away, but when Hazi and Nazreen make the make their appearance and how that sort of ties into the story. Uh, so, again, seamlessly, we've got an audience question that actually ties into what we're talking about. So someone wants to know if you have middle of the night ideas or revelations, and then I'm going to follow up with, do you have a notebook that you write your ideas when that happens? Because I tend to have them, don't have a notebook, forget them in the morning, and then ghost myself. For not oh, there are so many times when I have an idea in the middle of the night, and I wish, as your um, as your reader is asking, uh, that I had a pencil and a pen, and I would write those down. Now, here's what I do, because I, you know, I saw some YouTube video which, which said you should always write these things down. And so, instead of turning on the light, I had my pencil and pen, and I'm writing down the little uh, idea that I had. In the morning, I wake up. It is all chicken scratch. It's just all chicken scratch. Like, what, what was I doing? What was I thinking? So, um, so no, it doesn't work for me to do it uh, in the middle of the night. But yes, I do have a notebook. And as ideas come to me, I will write them down on the notebook. If I don't have my notebook, I use it my iPhone. And oftentimes I will uh, speak into my iPhone because I'm walking or I'm, you know, en route somewhere and I have this idea and um, I constantly use my iPhone for dictation. I love that. Yeah. I send my husband WhatsApp messages and I have ignore and then I write the message. So I've sent it so that it's. Oh, <laughs> so that whatever, works, whatever, whatever works. works, whatever works, whatever I have handy. Um, okay, so as we were talking about characters, I want to take this a step further and talk about the women in your book. The women in your book are, there are so many different types of women to begin with. Yeah. These characters are vessels that you have used to explore themes of feminism, freedom of choice, work versus family life, reproductive life, rights, societal pressure, and oftentimes shame that many women face. Um, and many of these issues are things that we're still grappling with today. In the henna artist, we have Lakshmi, uh, the protagonist who has chosen to not have kids and uh, for the sake of her career and the life that she wants to build around herself, which I personally want to applaud you for writing because um, you don't see that kind of representation in books very often. Uh, yeah. Who have chosen not to have kids are often shamed um, or, you know, just mm -hmm. since the beginning of time, girls, women have been sort of you know, to have one into their heads, so they have to get married, have to have babies. And for some reason, if you don't do either of those things, you have maybe failed in life, uh, which is so completely not true. Um, so I, writing a character like Lakshmi, who is unapologetically, you know, standing her own ground, choosing not to have kids, was 
a breath of fresh air to read and such an empowering uh, character. So, you know, thank you for that. And then on the other side, you have Radha, who is, like we mentioned earlier, in this tussle between uh, needing to sacrifice family for career and career for family life. Um, again, she is meant to look after her children, is expected to do so. And she struggles with that because she has this wonderful career that is, is forming. Again, both those situations kind of beg the question, can women have it all? Which we probably would be for a, a whole day just discussing. Yeah. But even yeah. further than that, you have well, not, yeah. Well, what's fascinating to me is that we have a whole world of women that, yeah. um, and we all deserve a seat at the table. So there are women who really want to stay home and take care of lots of children. And that's perfectly okay. If they, they if that's what they really want to do, they're probably going to be really good at it. Um, and then we have women who want uh, a family life and they want to work outside the home. And we should support that because um, if they are really excited about working outside the home, then uh, they're probably going to contribute something that we can all benefit from. And then there are women like me who never wanted to have children. And so Lakshmi is, uh, you know, the embodiment of women like me who prefer to remain child free. And it was a choice. It was a conscious choice. And, um, you know, we're perfectly happy with our lives <laughs> without, you know, without the, um, you know, the, the things the about. And laws, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I really did want a safe space to talk about all kinds of different women and to have everybody realize, you know, it's okay. Whatever it is you decide to do is perfectly okay. Uh, but that also we as a society should support you. We really need to support women. And I think in the perfumist part of what I'm trying to say is in 1974, Radha is dealing with all of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how can I be a good mother and want to spend time away from home? Uh, do I love one of my children more just because she's easier to deal with than the other? Um, you know, am I a bad wife if uh, if I'm too tired to pay a lot of attention to my husband because I've just spent all this time uh, mothering and, uh, you know, working uh, on my career? So these are all things that Radha is dealing with in 1974. And I think we're all still dealing with it now. We are still. And they are daily questions, I think, almost every woman goes through in some form or the other yeah. uh, day to day. Yeah. And um, I, want, I want to read uh, just a little section, <laughs> if, you, if you will allow me. Um, this is a section where Radha, and it comes toward the end, and Radha and her mother-in-law, Florence, are talking um, and they're having a very, uh, you know, sort of heavy conversation. She's quiet. We listen to each other breathe. Finally, she says, two days ago, I told Pierre, that's Rado's husband. I told Pierre that after you return from Agra, you seem different. I don't think it's just because Nikki showed up. It goes beyond that. There's a settled feeling about you in you. It's as if in India, you found a piece of yourself you had lost. There it is again, the idea that we women lose track of ourselves. Lakshmi always said henna was a way for a woman to find a part of herself she may have mislaid. Sheila said she wanted to bring the forgotten women back to life because while their painted images were famous, they themselves had been forgotten, discarded like candy wrappers on the ground. 
is that erasure of us something other people do to us or do we women do it to ourselves that is so powerful and and it and that is the resonance in this book with all of these characters that you feel that each of them make you question and make you think and they touch each a part of you that you may not have even realized you have been thinking and feeling and they've given voice to those thoughts and you not just have the the two protagonists who are kind of straddling between you know uh, life for a career and family life you have so many myriad stories in the middle from you know the rich sexual women of the the the, the maharanis who had the henna face you had all kinds of mother-in-laws from you know you have thrones but you also have who becomes empathetic towards the end especially for the reader you also have um you know kanta's mother-in-law who was wealthy and conservative much like your own you know stereotypical indian mother-in-law uh, and then you had hari's mother who was yes. practical and resourceful and at the time in the 50s she was so ahead of her time because she she gave lakshmi the tools to be who she is today um right. and then and then you had kanta who was again you know modern woman uh, of the fifth 1950s and modern indian woman uh, you know brought up on books and literature western books literature movies but then she's very much straddling societal norms as well so it was you know i it, a single story is the death of literature and the death of i think of any culture uh any people uh and women you have given that in this book which i i just i just love and i, I assume it was a very conscious choice for you to show this range in because there is such a range in this book it was a very conscious choice i firmly believe and it's the belief that my mother inculcated in me that every woman deserves to run her own life. You know, we should be the drivers of our own lives and we should make the choices that are going to make us happy or to make us satisfied or fulfilled in our lives. These are very important things for us to be able to do. And when we give up that power, we give up so much of who we are as people. Each of us is unique. Each of us has fabulous things to share with the world. Let's not give that away <laughs> to anybody else. So yes, it's very important for me. Another, um, the group that, you know, Hazi and Nazarene and the courtesans were very important uh, for me to bring back in the perfumist. I had a whole big section of them in the henna artist that got cut out. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I'm recycling here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to lose these ladies. So I bring them back for the perfumist. And in my research, I found out that these courtesans were amazing women. Uh, they are like geishas uh, where, you know, they're schooled in the art, classical, you know, music and poetry and literature, and they're entertaining uh, by, um, uh, you know, by, uh, by, you know, performing uh, a dance or uh, maybe a play uh, for their patrons, not necessarily as prostitutes. That's not what they were. But what happened is that um, they were so wealthy at one point. Uh, they owned factories, they owned farms, they owned businesses, uh, they owned, of course, their houses. And um, they were so wealthy that uh, they started to finance um, the independence movement, the mutiny of 1857. Uh, in part was financed by them. And when the British found out that they had been largely responsible for what was happening in uh, India at that time, they started taxing them very heavily. 
and they ruined their reputation as uh, started calling them prostitutes. And that really hurt them a lot. You know, many of the houses went out of business at that time because of the taxes and because of the reputation issue. But some of them survived and they rebuilt their empires. And then once again, in 1947, they helped uh, gain India's independence by, you know, sponsoring a lot of the um, uh, legislation, a lot of the uh, fighting and so on that went on. Uh, so I find these women very powerful. You may not think of women like them to be powerful or to really be um, respectful of their own power and their own ability to make things happen. And I just found them so fascinating. When you're in a house like that, and uh, many of the women coming were uh, refugees of some sort. They were uh, escaping a bad marriage, a bad family. Um, they were escaping widowhood where, you know, in India, you weren't allowed to do anything once you became a widow. You weren't even invited to weddings or any festivals because you were bad luck. You know, that's that's just a stupid societal pressure on you that, you know, doesn't need to exist, right? Um, so uh, these women were escaping all kinds of unpleasant circumstances and went into the house. And when they earned enough money to buy a house of their very own or to leave with their kids, they could do that. And all the kids born uh, in the Haveli were um, were uh, educated and uh, they played games, they had tutors, you know, all of that. But when the boys, uh, the sons got old enough, they had to leave. They had to leave. They had no property, nothing. Only the daughters of these women inherited property and money. And I thought that was fascinating. That was fascinating. And again, like you mentioned, I mean, there's so many layers to what you just said. And I'm so glad you brought it up. Because again, as someone who has lived in India her whole life, uh, studied Indian history my whole life, these women don't, are, there's no mention of them, right? Complete erasure. So not only does the book bring that out, you can feel and sense that reverence in Lakshmi and Radha when you meet, when they meet Hazi and Nazreen. And, and because of that, you feel it too, as the reader. Uh, and it shifted something in me because I knew this was historical fiction. And so I, I, but I knew that there was, you know, some accuracy there. And so it was after reading that I actually went and researched and I discovered that, oh no, this was not the fictional element. This was actually the historical fact element. Um, and I mean, again, this is the beauty of stories that bring out so much that is hidden and lost. And again, um, these women were just incredible. I, and then it, yeah, and I had no idea that they, they existed in such forms. They were, they, I knew of them and exactly like you said, painted in the, you know, with the, with the, with the perception of them being prostitutes um, and having no idea this wonderful refuge that they created um, for so many women. And even the, the, the men that they, they, they employed in their businesses and really in economy and trade. Um, yes. So that was absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. I, I want to end my questions with uh, just a quick touch on the fact that um, you have represented India, uh, which is a setting obviously in the book, but to me, it felt like its own character, especially in the henna artist. Um, and you have, like I mentioned, there's so much historical accuracy that has gone in, but it has been handled with such nuance and sensitivity. Um, like the myriad stories of women, India is a story of a countless people. 
And how is it for you to take on the responsibility of representing this country, which you know, oftentimes gets stereotyped under the Western perception of it being a developing country. And not many people know of its contributions to art, history, literature. Um, how did you how, how did you approach uh, representing India in a single story? One of the things I was really careful about was to get the facts correct. Uh, the facts about what was happening in 1955 India, about all the rebuilding that was going on, the fact about um, why India was considered an underdeveloped, uh, poverty-stricken country when the British left, because they took everything with them <laughs> over 200 years. They they practically raped the country of all the wealth that she had, and they put tens of millions of workers out of work. So yes, India was a poor country in 1947. And uh, so I wanted to make sure with every novel, I get the history part of it correct. And then for uh, a novel like The Perfume of Paris, I get the perfume part correct. But every single time, this is so interesting, Pio, every single time that I do research, I also find out one more layer of how India has contributed to the world. So when I started out uh, thinking about perfume and doing the research on perfume, I had no idea that the main ingredients that go into perfume come from the Indian subcontinent. No yeah, and they had for centuries. And then I thought, oh, of course it makes sense because um, there was the silk route and there was a spice route that all the European traders were on so that they could bring back all the riches from the subcontinent. Uh, and part of what they brought back were spices. And so that is why I think in one of my headers for the uh, chapters, I put in all these interesting information about, about perfume ingredients. And one of them was that all cloves were traded for gold. They were so precious. And what the Europeans would do with them, not anything I would ever have thought, is they would scatter them on the floors of their houses to absorb foot odor. <laughs> Yeah. And the reason for that is because Europeans didn't believe in bathing, which is something that, you know, in India, bathing is a big ritual. Yeah. You must do it every day. You must keep yourself clean. Yeah. Um, but I think for a long time, Europeans thought that taking a bath would be, um, you know, unclean in some way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So so I learned all these amazing things. And so in The Perfumist, I learned that. In um, the Secret Keeper of Jaipur, the second book, I learned a lot about the nomadic people. I did a lot of research on them up in the Himalayas and how they have their own set of traditions and uh, herbal remedies and, um, yeah. you know, just the way that they interact with everybody else, uh, their schooling, all of that. So that was fascinating. And then in the first book, you know, finding out the, all of this uh, information about henna, which has become so popular throughout the world now as a as a decorative uh, skin, uh, con, you know, uh, treatment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we get to learn, you know, about the herbal remedies that come from India. So I try to make sure my history is correct. I try to make sure that everything I'm writing about, uh, you know, that is central to every story is uh, correct and based in reality. Um, and then beyond that, I uh, also have Indians read my books. Uh, my first, um, my first reader is always my husband because uh, he's a writer. And so he will edit my my book, my manuscript for, you know, little glaring errors here and there. My second reader is always my dad because my dad is, he's 93. He is really sharp and he's the one who's always sending me articles and TED talks and different things that he thinks would help my writing and give me all that background. 
Uh, so he will correct things for me in you know, what I sent yeah. something I might have written. Um, and then my older brother is a doctor and he will correct any medicinal things that I have <laughs> in the books that might not be correct. Um, so I have a lot of people looking at my books. I, you know, we have a lot of Indian friends who then will read the books and I am constantly surprised at the Indians throughout the global diaspora, Indians, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans, Bangladeshis, all of them throughout the diaspora who will contact me and say, how did you get this so right when you haven't lived in India since you were nine years old? It is very true. It is, <laughs> it is, a, it is the best compliment because I find representation of India never matches my expectations. And I have lived there my whole childhood and my whole adulthood. Um, and so it pains me. There are very few authors that get it right. And you are up there. And it's... Well uh, Pyle, let me, uh, you know, let me, uh, you know, give you this little insight, which was something that was not shared with me until the book was sold. So in um, selling the book, my agent had to figure out what were comps, what was another book that was similar to this, what were two books that they could bookend uh, next to my book so that, um, you know, people would go, well, it's like this and like that, but somewhere in the middle, right? And what happened is that they couldn't figure out comps because of people's perceptions of India. Either people were writing about poverty, uh, like let's say Rohinton Mystery, um, you know, in a fine balance, or they were writing about the immigrant experience, which I think Jampa Lahiri does beautifully, or they were writing about partition, which is Salman Rushdie's uh, little bailiwick. So they couldn't figure out how a novel the henna artists about 1950s India, people just living their lives, they're wealthy, they're middle class, they're poor, they're just going about their daily lives. They couldn't figure out where that fit. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was a challenge. It was a challenge for my agent uh, to try to find that fit. I think she finally was able to talk some people into it. And those are the people that ended up buying the book at HarperCollins. But, but to your point, um, so many people get it, I think, wrong or they focus on one tiny aspect of what it's like to be in India. And I wanted to capture that global aspect of what it's like to be there. And you really, truly did um, with both the henna artist, the secret uh, keeper of Jaipur, and then the, the modern woman, the Indian woman uh, who leaves India and, you know, also. Um, okay, I know we're running short of time. So my last question to you is a lightning round. What is your favorite scent? Um, okay, I think it has to be sandalwood. I oh, find sandalwood essential oil to be oh, so calming. That's a good um, one. And, and you know, uh, since you've lived uh, in India your whole life, you know when you pass a temple, that is oh, what you know. Oh yes, and then when you get the the sandalwood cutouts of elephant, I mean, you just you're just yes, <laughs> yes. and sandalwood soap oh, and you know everything. sandalwood incense, everything. Oh, yeah, love it. Okay, so we're going to dive into some audience questions. Uh, we have one that asks, what did Alka do before becoming an author? Those three other careers she referenced. Okay, so the first one was, I was, uh, believe it or not, an internal auditor. <laughs> oh, wow, no. Whoa. I know. 
And I left it because it was not creative enough. I thought if I keep doing this for the rest of my life, I will hang myself. So I thought, you know, okay, I got to find something more creative. And so I started studying to become um, an advertising uh, creative. And you can go in two different ways. You can go into the art department, uh, you know, the um, you can become an art director or you can become a copywriter. And so I went and I interviewed, I thought I was going to be an art director because I always saw myself as an artist and I was always drawing and painting and everything. And so I showed my portfolio and they looked at it and they go, well, why don't you want to be a writer? I said, because I want to be an art director. And they said, we've got a job for a writer. And sure enough, on your portfolio, it shows that you can write. That was the first time I had ever thought oh, I can make a living as a writer, but I was writing ads. I was writing commercials. I was writing TV, radio, you know, magazine ads, that kind of thing. And um, so that was my second profession. Uh, My third profession was to uh, take all of that knowledge and to use it to learn about marketing and then Mm -hmm. start my own agency. So when I started my own agency, I did that for about 12, 15 years. And um, I, I just, I did the gamut. I did event production. I did marketing. I did advertising, just, you know, the, the whole uh, scenario. And then, you know, becoming a full-time author was my fourth, uh, you know, career. You know, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this too. This is really amazing. People ask me if I have ever been asked to write something a little different than what I'm writing uh, to maybe hold something back, you know, maybe not talk about, um, uh, you know, adoption, maybe not talk about this or that. And I have never, ever, ever in any of my, um, you know, publishing team has anybody ever said, don't do that, uh, which has been lovely. And uh, when I first got the contract with HarperCollins, uh, they, you know, they invited me out to New York and then to Canada. And the way that they greeted me was amazing. They had um, they had already uh, finished the cover of my book, so they had the cover splashed all over the uh, lobby. And then I walk in. There's a conference room, and there's 45 people on the staff uh, working on my book, and they are standing there around the conference room, and we are toasting with champagne. And there's a cake there in the um, you know in the form of the cover of the henna artist. And, uh, and, you know, they, they, they do videos with me and so on. And when my handler was uh, putting me in the taxi to go back to the airport, uh, I said to him, you guys are so nice to your authors. And he said, Alka, we don't do this for everybody. No, they don't. I was going to say, you're living the unicorn author dream that we dream of. (laughs) They said, they said, Alka, this is a big book for us. This is going to be a really big book. And um, the henna artist is going to put your imprint, uh, Mira Books, on the map. So I had no idea until then. I just thought I was any other kind of author that they might, uh, you know, sponsor. But I had no idea at that t- until that moment that that was going to be something they're going to focus on and make a big sale out of. I completely and took then me who out. knew that was just the first step? I mean, yes, the A, you know, A as a woman woman to woman, you are sensationally inspirational. Um, the amount that you have achieved in your life is, is breathtaking is honestly like, you know, gives me goosebumps just hearing about all the different things you've done and not just, you know, for a year or two. I mean, you've spent chunks of your life doing them and that's incredible. And then as a South Asian woman, that is a whole other thing. Just, it's like a hundred million cherries on that amazingly beautiful. (laughs) Um, 
and yeah and then like and it's it was just the beginning um and you know so we can touch upon a couple of the we have two questions i can talk about uh one is uh is there anything you can share uh, about your netflix adaptation i saw that frida pinto is going to be lakshmi which is fabulous and also um an audience member wants to know if um how you came to learn that the henna artist had been selected for the Reese Witherspoon book club and what honor entails and what that honor entails for you. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll start with the second one first. Um, my editor at HarperCollins called me and she said, Alka, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to keep it quiet for a month. And I said, okay. Uh -huh. And uh, she said, you know, we just got word that Reese Witherspoon is going to uh, make one, uh, yours, one of the, her 12 book picks for this year. And uh, so I was like, oh, my God. And my husband was in the room and he said, what's up? And I, uh, you know, I put down the phone and I said, um, Reese Witherspoon has picked my book for one of her selections. <laughs> and he just started jumping around the room oh, We're here. Now he's listening. So to me. He just started jumping around the room. He was like, oh, my God, I can't. You did it. You did it. You did it. <laughs> and now it's going to be a Netflix series. So you did it 10 times over. I mean, that's just amazing yeah, yeah but he's you know he's always been such a great supporter um and I you know I want people to know it's not just the female characters that I focus on I'm really also very proud of my male characters and um you know I'm always interested in men who can change uh who can become more enlightened and uh I think my husband is actually one of those people who already is enlightened which is why I married him <laughs> <laughs> wise <laughs> We see it in Hari. We see it. Um, we Dr. See Kumar. Kumar, who's amazing. We even see it in Pierre in different ways. I mean, you know, he's also a man of that time and generation. And uh, it's, it's again, yes, it, it's, it's a human deep dive, not just uh, one in, into womanhood. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Um, so, one of the member or audience members have asked, um, do you surround yourself with music and sense when you write? Uh, and then another one wants to know that last month, my sister in Michigan was gifted a Lila Noor perfume. Oh. Yes, ties to the book. I'm jealous, she says. And also curious, how did this novel partnership come together? Fun intended. <laughs> Oh, well, I have to tell you, look, all of my marketing background, right? Yes. So um, I told you about all the research I did to find out about perfume. One of the experts I spoke to was a man named Paul Austin, and he was uh, at that time working on a set of fragrances for Lila Nur, which was his uh, company that he co-founded. And uh, each one of the fragrances is being um, developed by a master perfumer from France. And... Um, so they're taking Indian ingredients, raw ingredients from India, and combining the French uh, savoir-faire with it and coming up with these fabulous um, perfumes. So when the perfumist of Paris went off to the printer, I had about six months uh, to do something else. And I said, hey, uh, Paul, how about a collaboration? And uh, I said, you know, the book's coming out and your perfume is coming out. You know, That's how that would look? And he said, all right, I think that sounds great. So um, between HarperCollins and Leela Nur, they, um, uh, you know, did the collaboration officially. And then uh, Paul developed um, this Perfumist of Paris box. And this is the actual perfume on the inside, the vials. Um, it is absolutely gorgeous. 
And um, then Paul sent uh, 20 of these to major bookstores all around the country that we wow. identified. So the early um, adopters of the uh, perfume, Mr. Paris, all got uh, one of these boxes. Isn't that lovely? That is lovely. And I just noticed that we're kind of wearing the colors, you the shawl and me the- Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Look at that. Oh my God, everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I I could not be happier about this collaboration. You know, collaborations only work when, when yeah. they are, you know, really well tied to one another. Oh, I love that. And uh, do you listen to any music? Music. I don't. I do. I like silence. I like silence when I work. Uh, I can't really have a lot of noise. But okay, now that I say that, I can actually work on an airplane. I can work, um, you know, uh, <laughs> or I can work in a bus. I can work, you know, I can work anywhere. Because when I'm in that zone, and I'm writing, boom, I'm just right there. And I don't really hear anybody. I'm with you. Uh, I, I can't write with music either. It, and especially not music that has words in them. There's just too much of a <laughs> uh, uh, There are a lot of um, fans in our chat who want you to know that they are fans of the chickpea curry, the gulkand, uh, and all of the recipes at the end of the book. So I just oh. wanted to mention that. And then we will leave uh, with the last question. Uh, you know, what's coming next? You, you teased about a fourth book. Can you tell us anything? Yes. Yes. So, um, so the fourth book is coming 2024 and, uh, it's going to be about a, uh, young nurse who is taking care of a famous painter and, uh, she's modeled after the Indian Frida Kahlo, who was Amrita Shergill. Uh, so the young nurse is taking care of this patient. The patient unexpectedly dies. And the nurse is being blamed for it. She loses her job and she spends the rest of the book trying to figure out what might have happened to this woman. And her quest to find the answer takes her to Prague and to Florence and to Paris. That's, and then back to New Delhi. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And no title. No title yet? Uh, it, right now, they're just calling it The Painter. And I, I don't know. You know, I don't title my books. That's another um, thing that most most people don't know that rarely do we get to title our books, which right. I'm happy because I'm terrible with titles, but I know it. I'm happy too. you know, the <laughs> the Hannah artist, the original title was supposed to be um, the enemy of the crocodile. And frankly, no. <laughs> I, I don't think that would have sold one book. Right. No. <laughs> How, what a terrible no. title that is. So, you know. When they said, you know, Alka, is it all right if we just call it the henna artist? I said, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much, Alka. This was an absolute joy and a privilege for me. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful time. And I hope everyone listening had a wonderful time as well. Um, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, libraries are such an important part of all of us authors' lives. I think that most of us grew up on libraries. Um, you know, we, we checked out books every week. We couldn't wait to read them. We would rather read than go out to parties. I don't know if you're like me, but I would rather read than go out to a party <laughs> still. And my mentor in my um, MFA program, she said we should all uh, have T-shirts imprinted with Real writers don't go out because <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Absolutely. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you again, Alka. And thank uh, you. Bye, everybody.
that wraps up our Ramsey County Library event with Elka Joshi. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Rebecca F. Kwong. Speculative fiction superstar R.F. Kwong is the author behind the number one New York Times bestselling The Poppy War series. Her first standalone, Babel, envisions an alternate universe British empire powered by a unique form of alchemy, the innate magic of language translation. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.